Good morning. I'm so glad my stuff won't fall down on the ground. <laughs> I was surprised at how many of you use QR codes. I'm, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I, I pulled that up last night and it was like 24 of you. Wow. So we're going to be in Numbers chapter 11 today, which is not at all related to QR codes. Man, this is one of those passages, let me tell you. You just it's, you don't really want to study it, but you need to. And then you study it, and you just, it's good, but it can be challenging. So I'm not telling you it won't, be, it won't be a good study today, but it's one of those that I find very convicting, and I'm the one who has to teach it up here. So um, it's the, it's, it, it, we're, This is like the middle, okay? We've, we've, we've hit the middle. And so usually this is the day where everyone's sleepy. I was talking to Pastor Cox, though, and he says it's tomorrow that's the day that everyone's sleepy. And then I was thinking about it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I got my days off. Why do I think that? I think it's because I'm sleepy. <laughs> I tell you, if you have, like, mild allergies, sometimes sleeping at camp is not the best. But you know what? I can be content. <laughs> That's been the running joke all week. I'll be talking to someone, and I'll say something like, yeah, but I'm content. I'm like, well, this is okay, okay. Man, I should be content too. <laughs> so um, let's go ahead and open in prayer, and then we're going to read most, I might skip a little, it's a long chapter. Um, we're going to read the whole story, and then we're going to go back and talk about it, and I'm going to annotate like all the way through, so there's not a really strong outline today. Probably what you could do, though, is to ask how am I like these Israelites? Because what they're going to do is they're going to show us what discontentment looks like. And usually I think when we think about discontentment, we're thinking about the biggest things in life. And I think you're going to see today that it is a big thing, but it may not seem like a big thing. And that might help us to see where maybe there's some discontent in our own lives. So let's go ahead and pray and then let's read the passage. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for how kind you are, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would bless your word today as we study it. I pray that you would give us good thoughts and good understandings about it. And Lord, I do pray that your spirit would be at work in our souls today, God, and that as we look at this text, Lord, it would, like a mirror, show us our own lives and perhaps maybe some areas where we ourselves are discontent. Um, maybe we'll see that we've been not thinking discontent is that big of a deal, or maybe we've been missing it all entirely. I pray, Lord, that this passage would help us today, and it would reprove us and correct us. In your son's name we pray, amen. All right, Numbers chapter 11. And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord. Man, that's just a wonderful start to a passage, isn't it? And the people complained. Now, what's interesting is chapter 10 is this really high point. There's some really good stuff going on for Israel. And so if you only had chapter 10, you'd think, these are some spiritually great people. They're following their Lord. And then chapter 11, verse 1, and the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumeth some of the outlying parts of the camp. Then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. So the name of that place was Taberah, because the fire of the Lord burned there. Now there's some wordplay there in Hebrew behind Taberah. That's actually not the section that we're going to get to today. We're going to start in chapter in verse 4. We're going to go through the rest of the chapter. But I just want to point out that the chapter starts off 
with complaining, judgment, and then they name the place after what happened there. This is a kind of common Hebrew thing to do. Um, for us, we could do these things, but it might be a little bit weird, like, oh, I complained, and then I blew a tire, and I knew the Lord was trying to get my attention, so this was the get-the-attention spot on the corner, you know, or the street or whatever. We don't really do that, but that's kind of how it worked sometimes with Israel. So let's go ahead and dive in verse 4. Now the rabble was among them, and they had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like a coriander seed, and its appearance was like that of bedellum. And the people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of the cakes was like, uh, oops, I lost my place. The taste of the cakes was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell upon the camp at night, the manna fell with it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout the clans, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay this burden of this people on me? Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth, give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to give to their fathers? I don't know if that's how it sounded. But it kind of comes off that way in the tone. Do you notice that? Like Moses is really kind of a complainer guy right here. Verse 13, where am I to get meat to give to all these people? For they weep before me and say, give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight, they might, that I might not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and then let them take their stand with you. And I will come down and I will talk to you where you uh, talk to you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you, and I will put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. So it's almost like God was giving Moses help because he couldn't handle it. And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us in Egypt. Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you will eat. You will not just eat one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you. Now notice, I'm trying to read this without stopping, but I want to point that out. Why have they rejected the Lord? and Why, or why is it so bad that they rejected the Lord? Because the Lord has been among them. They have seen the works of the Lord, and in the presence of the Lord they have rejected him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I number 600,000 on foot, and you've said, I will give them meat that they can eat for a whole month? Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and that be enough for them? 
Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now, you shall see whether my word will come true or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered the 70 men and the elders of the people of Israel, and he placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in a cloud, and he spoke to them. And he took some of the spirit that was on Moses, and he put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, and one was named Eldad, and the other was named Medad. Not my dad, Medad. And the spirit of the Lord rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out from the tent so that they prophesied in the camp. And the young men ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to them, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders returned to the camp. Verse 31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea, and it let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on the side, and about a day's journey on the other side, around the camp, about two cubits above the ground, about the height of this pulpit here. And uh, those who gathered, uh, who gathered, uh, gathered at least ten omers. Oh, sorry, I missed a verse there. Let me go back here. And the people rose all day and all night and all the next day and gathered quail. And those who gathered, gathered at least ten omers, and they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. Now, while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was Kibriath Hatava, because they were buried because they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibriath Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained at Hazaroth. Whew, man, that's not one of those uh, wonderful times in Israel's history where you're like, man, look at those people following the Lord their God. This is where they're getting really complainy. And what are they complaining about? Food? Do they have food? Do they have God's provision? Yeah, they've got the manna every day, and they're complaining. So what we want to do today is we want to look at this text. I'm going to go back and highlight some points through the story that I want to make sure we don't miss. And then we're just going to talk about what discontentment is like. But today, you might ask yourself, um, think about this. They're complaining, and the complaining is the symptom of the discontent. So if I had asked myself before I did this study, am I a discontent person? Do I have discontentment in my life? I don't know what I would have said. I think I know myself well enough to know, yeah, I'm kind of a discontent person. But if you're not sure, one of the key symptoms of this kind of a sickness is that you complain. You complain. You talk about how much you don't like something. So how about you? What do you complain about? Do you complain about your car, your house, your friends, or maybe your lack of friends, your pastor, your boss, your parents, Maybe your kids, your height, your hair, your weight, your gender. What is it that you're comparing about today? Do you complain about the shower head in your bathroom? (laughs) See, this is great. It worked. It worked. (laughs) You told me. (laughs) It was really funny. So Steve told me the story about this illustration. I'll let him tell it later. About shower heads. And so I'm like, oh, that's weird. And then I go to my, no kidding, I go to my room and the shower head doesn't, it's like a plastic one, and it doesn't screw tightly, and it kind of spurts off to the side. 
not like where the shower is. I was like shooting off the side. I'm like, oh, I'm going to adjust that. And I, I only gave it like a half a turn and I stopped. Because I knew, oh, I think the plastic part might be maybe cracked and then it's just going to fall. Anyways, but I, I wasn't going to complain at that point because I'd heard a story about complaining and I'm talking about complaining and contentment this week. Are you complaining about the cabin you're staying in? Did you not get the one that you wanted, maybe the one that you've always had, and is that ruining your week? I know that would never happen in a place like this. I know, I know. Uh, what about the people in the room next door? Are they maybe a little too smelly or loud at night? Or smelly and loud? Maybe their smell is loud. Right. Has that been like, man, it... <laughs> Is that, have you had some complaining in your heart about that? Thankfully, I'm up in the, uh, the you know, uh, I'm not a by any of you, so I'm sure you don't think that about me. Um, have you been complaining about the staff or the leadership this week? Surely you're not complaining about the speakers. Oh, no. Um, what about this? Do you think, the, in our culture today, did you never think you'd be like a homeschooling parent? And then the culture goes off the cliff, and now you're stuck with that? Is that something you've been maybe in your heart complaining about? Or maybe like you can't do that and your kids are in public school and man, and it's, or maybe you wished you were, you're at Christian school but it's too expensive. Is there some complaining there? What about the food this week? Oh, no, no, no. We wouldn't be complaining. My kids are so excited about the food this week. Did you assume by now you'd have your house paid off and then the market started to inflate? Man, where's Tom Brady when we need him, you know? No Patriots? Oh, man, that was, I thought that was a pretty good jab. And then the, maybe, maybe the last one. Uh, has the coffee just been okay this week? <laughs> Sorry, I can't. My coffee maker came because my dad, my dad's back here today, and he brought it up, and, and so I have, I have me, much better coffee today. But, but yesterday and the day before, I just, Pastor Steve was bailing me out with the bun, and I just thought, okay, this is good. This is going to be good, so... Um, so a little like, I just want you to get the idea of like, where are you complaining in life? Um, it's, I don't think anyone here doesn't struggle with discontent. And maybe I'm judging you spiritually and I'm sorry. But I would think this is a very common human problem. But I don't know that we always stop and think about where it is. Does that make sense? Like, we know this is something we struggle with. But when's the last time we stopped and said, like, took an assessment, where am I complaining in life? All right, so let's go back to the story now. Uh, Oh, on. There we go. <laughs> I was about to complain, and then I, I didn't. All right. So our first major section here is going to be, we're going to talk about complaining. It's a major symptom of discontent. And what I want to do is I just want to talk about, the, this is for fun. This is all for free. I want to talk about the structure of this story we're about to, to walk through. Uh, you don't need to know any of this. This is just for fun. Some of you will really think this is interesting. Some of you will think, this guy's dumb. That's okay. I'll take it. All right, so this story, when you tell a story today, where does the punchline come? Like, where, where is it? The beginning, the middle, or the end? The end. Now, there's a punchline here. There's like a death punchline in the story at the end. I get it. But actually, that started the story, too. Do you remember that? Like, at the very beginning, there are these people. They complain, and there's a fire, and that was God's judgment. And then some, they buried them, and then they named the place after the fire. And then how did the story end? People are like wicked and they're eating this quail greedily and they're hoarding and God judges them and they die and they bury them and they name the place. So that's like a punchline, but then you had like a punch open. It's like a punch open. So the way it sometimes Hebrew stories work is the big point isn't at the beginning or the end. 
there's a really big point right in the center. Because they were not a literary people. People didn't read back then. I mean, Moses read and his helpers read. But most people didn't have quills and scrolls or tablets and cuneiform and all that stuff. And so everything was verbal. And so sometimes when you told a story, you would tell the story and you'd get to the thing you want to talk about and then you go backwards and you would mirror it all. And it's really random for us. Like, we don't think like this, but this one's kind of cool. So I'm just going to show you for fun. So in this story, both the people get judged and Moses gets judged. And that's kind of the big point. And you see it leading right there in the middle. And we call this a chiastic structure. You don't need to know this. But you see that X letter right there? That's a Greek X. And so all you need to think of is this. All right. Now don't try to write this down. This is from just a commentary where this guy studied this passage out. And you can see the story mirroring itself to the middle point of the section. And then it goes all the way back and everything mirrors. So if you look, oops, no, that's not going to work. Okay, you have this complaint of the people, they're craving meat. That word craving occurs again, but not till the very end when they name the place Kibriath Hatava, which by the way in Hebrew means the graves of craving. I feel like that sounds like what some cemeteries in America need to be named, where we die because we were like too unhealthy and we just couldn't stop eating. Like it's it's a really like dark thing. Hey, the graves of craving. I mean, I I feel like that's that could be a weird haunted house at Halloween or something. So it's it's weird, okay? But you have a you have a judgment and a plague. What's fire? And then here you have actual plague, which is a judgment. Then next you have Yahweh's former provision. Yahweh is God. The manna. And remember how like it. And right in the middle of this passage, it starts describing manna. We already know that. It was in Exodus. It's in Deuteronomy. And now he's talking about it again. Part of the reason he's doing that is he's setting up, look at what Yahweh does. And then at the very end, it talks about the new provision, which is the quail. So this whole thing mirrors. But the point I want to get to is that in the very center, it's not just that the people have been complaining. Moses is now complaining. Now, I read it a certain way, but I can't imagine saying this to God, but that's just because I don't honestly look at my own sin nature. Here I am, I'm Moses now, or maybe you're Moses, and Moses, God tells you, I'm going to do this. It seems out of the realm of possibility that I would say to God, really, God? You're going to get enough meat? For, how, am I gonna, how are you going to find meat for everybody? Where are the cows, God? We're in a desert. I can't imagine myself saying that to God. But if I was Moses, I know my sinful heart, I probably would have. So sometimes, don't be tempted like, to look at Moses and think, I would never say that. I would imagine we might. So the whole story is getting at this complaining uh, situation. And so you don't need to know that, but the, the, or you don't need to know the chiastic structure, but just the, the point is that the very center is what he's trying to get at. And we don't tell stories like that. So it gets so bad that even Moses is going to complain. All right, so let's get to the story. All right, verse four, let's talk about the rabble. This is, you bring this, bring this, put this into your vocabulary. This is a fun word, okay, the rabble. So my Bible says, uh, and the people, or the, there was the rabble among them. Now, some of you might have a different translation, but if you, if you look it up in like a really fancy Hebrew dictionary, literally the other ways to translate it, they'll say the riffraff. <laughs> riffraff, did you know that's a biblical term? You can call people riffraff, and they'll be like, numbers 11, riffraff. Okay, or a bunch of vagabonds. That's another way you could have translated it. These were people who, when Israel left in the Exodus, they weren't Israelites. They sort of followed along. 
and they've just kind of attached themselves to the back of this troop. And then when the manna comes down, they're sort of taking the manna also. And so this one commentary, they were like the stragglers, the vagabonds. He says this, he says, this account appropriately begins the rabble, an apt term for a non-Israelite mixed group of people who follow the people of Israel from Egypt. This term points to a recurring source of complaints and trouble in the camp. Those who did not know the Lord and his mercies too easily incited those who did know him to rebel against him. However the murmuring began, it soon spread throughout all the camp. So what's really interesting here is that where the complaints arise is actually outside of the Israelite community with these people who are like right with them. If you want to plant this seed, that's how complaining works. Uh, man, when we think of our own sin, we think of our own sin and the negative effects on us. But you can sin in front of other people without realizing it, you're tempting them into the same kinds of sinful activities. I'm sure you've met someone who, oh man, they can tell you what's wrong about everything. I mean, you know, I don't need to name names. You, you, you know them. There's probably four to maybe ten names that pop up in your head. I had a job where this one person, I get around him and everything's wrong with the world. I, I know a friend who, I love this guy, but I, I don't go around him as much now because, man, we get together and it's just something about our personalities. We just start complaining. Uh, this is why I don't really listen to conservative talk radio. I can't be sanctified listening to that. I come home and I'm all round, wound up. And, and it, there's a way that you can communicate that's not edifying that it's like a sickness that you just passed it to someone else. And so here in the text, that's actually one of the big points I think he's making right at the outset. This rabble was wrongly influencing the Israelites to complain. Now, they don't know the Lord, and so of course they're going to speak like that. But the Israelites have walked literally with their God in front of them, leading them, and they've seen miracles. They've been saved by him through, like saved out of, Exodus, or out of Egypt through the Exodus. And they should know better. That's a warning to us, though. Even though we know better, it's easy to fall into this sin. All right, let's go to verse 5. Now, another interesting little tidbit here is in, in verse 5. <clears throat> these people say, we remember the fish we ate in Egypt. Now, that wouldn't have been the rabble. That would have been the Israelites now. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt. It costs nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. By the way, if I was remembering things that I ate, I don't think I would remember all those things. I think I'd probably think of like the, you know, like garlic's like a condiment or a seasoning. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I love seasoning, but I, if I hadn't eaten anything but like manna for a long time, I don't think I'd remember the seasoning. But they did. And, and so they're complaining. And this is, but now our strength is dried up and there's nothing to eat but this manna. Now, just pause for a moment. When they were back here in Egypt, what was life like for them? Yeah, harsh. Was their strength dried up in Egypt? Did they work themselves to the bone every day? Yeah. Now they're like, oh, our strength's dried up. And all we have to eat is this manna. So is there something missing in their memory? Are they remembering like maybe just one aspect of something? Like maybe the aspect that their heart is presently desiring? I think this is something we do too. Think about your own life. Uh, I had one job and I got a different job. And at the last six months of this job, it was really, 
every time I came home from work, there was some problem and some difficulty, and I'd be talking to Robin, and we'd be talking about it, and I get this new job that was way better, and then it started to get bad, and I remember a couple times looking back thinking, man, I remember this, it was so nice, and thankfully, my wife was helpful to say, yeah, and do you remember all these other things? And it was, I remember in those moments thinking, wow, yeah, that's right, that was, okay, that's right, it was bad. Why? And, and you kind of wonder, why did I forget all that? Well, our heart has big, strong desires, and those desires tend to blind us to truth. And I think you're seeing that here with the nation of Israel. All right, next, let's keep going. So in verse 6 through 10, they essentially are complaining about God's miraculous provision. They're complaining about the manna. They're, they're saying, this doesn't taste good. It's nothing. I'm just so tired of it. Now, again, if I had to eat God's miraculous bread all my life, because I'm not sanctified, I probably also would complain at some point. But think about the manna and what it was doing for them. They're in the desert. They're an agrarian culture. Okay, They're used to growing things and eating things that they grow. Can you grow anything in a desert? No. And yet, what does God do? He provided for his people. Now, all of that is lost on them at this point because of the influence of the rabble. Now, I don't want to blame the rabble, okay? I'm not blaming them. It's, the rabble doesn't know God like Israel does, so it's almost worse that the Israelites are complaining. So they complain to God about his, his miraculous provision for them. And then you get to verse 10, and now Moses starts to complain about the people. And again, I just I can't imagine talking to God like this, but that's just because I don't know my human heart as well as as I should. But man, he was pretty direct. Can you imagine saying those things to God? Can you imagine being like Moses where you see God or you, you interact with God like face to face like a friend and then saying those things? But I guess if I'm honest, when life's been hard sometimes, I think I've said some similar things to God. And think about poor Moses. He's probably scared to death there's going to be a big mutiny or an uprising. And in that moment, he's not thinking about the power of his God, who he serves. He's thinking about the threat and the difficulty that he's facing. So notice what he forgot. He's forgetting about the character of God, and he's only seeing the difficulty ahead of him. I want you to go back multiple days in your memory to the first night we were together, and we talked about contentment. What's the foundation of contentment? The character of God. And I think here Moses forgets that character to an extent and only sees the problem in front of him. Imagine the places in your life where the problem is so big, it sort of blinds you to the character of your God. That's like a petri dish to grow discontent in our lives. All right, carrying on, verse 18, God tells Moses, Moses, this is what I'm going to do for you. I, I, you call these elders together, they're going to help you, consecrate them, and then go tell the people you're going to eat meat. And you're not just going to eat some meat, you're going to eat it till you hate it. And then when God tells Moses what he's going to do, Moses responds in unbelief. And what I want to point out here is that he doesn't believe God can do this. Why? He's looking at the desert, and he's remembering how far away the ocean is, and he's thinking, how can we get all this food? There's no way you can do this, God. And I think at the root of discontentment is an unbelief in what the God of the Bible says he can do. Now, I'm not trying to say that if you, you just got to wish for it and hope for it and you can do all things through Christ. You know, I'm not saying any of that, okay? 
but there is a root of unbelief connected in discontentment. When I think of discontent, I think of complaining and having too much strong desire for something that I shouldn't, but I rarely think that I'm unbelieving when it comes to God. I rarely think that, and that's a really big deal right here in the text. So God tells Moses, I'm going to do this. Moses responds in unbelief and says, how can you do this, God? And God responds, hold my manna. Hold my manna. Okay, that's a little, okay. But essentially he's like, really? Is my arm too short, Moses? And I really think it's like a throwing down the gauntlet. Really, Moses? Okay. Watch. You watch what the Lord's about to do. I think it's like God throwing down in a sense. With There's a little bit of that force here. Now, I... <laughs> I, again, I don't think I would want to get in this situation with God. But how many biblical authors have been in this situation? Think of Job. Job, man, he just wants to know. He just wanted to know why God was allowing him. And God finally said, okay, I'll answer. That was tense. But what did Job learn? Oh, you're right. Now I know who you are. You can do everything. And then he was satisfied. He didn't even need to know why at that point. Moses, how are you going to do this? God's like, watch. Watch me, Moses. So Moses gets elders to assist him, and that whole thing's kind of weird, but it's people to help Moses. And I think there's maybe a hint here that Moses is overworked. He's exhausted. These people are just trying him, and it's just too much for him to handle. And I think that's playing into his discontent, his fear, and his, in a sense, freaking out. It might be something for us to think about, too. Then you have verse 31, the Lord sends the quail. Now, this is really interesting. There's Anytime you have a miracle in the Old Testament and you read a bunch of commentaries, there's inevitably some commentator that's like, oh, yes, this is very normal. There's like migratory patterns here, and this was not a miracle, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, whatever. Um, <clears throat> but quail, uh, they're not like hawks. <laughs> you know, they're not like up there floating around really high on the wind. If you've ever seen like a pheasant or a, a quail or um a pigeon, like anything in that kind of a bird family fly. Does anyone think they're like the best flyers ever? No, they're not the greatest. They're kind of chubby. They're a little tubby for birds. And, and they fly. So, I mean, when they're all flying about this high, I mean, that's probably like the best they can do. I mean, it's, it's, they may be a little higher, but you're out in the desert and the wind blew you off course and like, what are you doing? And so it, think about the people. They go out and here's these quail flying by. And how do you get the quail? I mean, you probably just like whack them, like just hit them. I would play frisbee with my son, and like he couldn't like. I would throw it softly, but it, you know he's little, and it it would hit and hurt his hands. And then if he missed, it would hit his face. And so I was like, "Look, just get next to it and hit it." And so I would throw it, and he could like get really good at just knocking that thing down. I'm like, "This is the Israelites. Here's the quail. Yeah, this is great, you know." And so I don't know if it's quite like that. But they were easy pickings is the point. Now, God could have sent something that they had to hunt and exert themselves over and maybe even get injured hunting. And God sends them really easy birds, like small, almost flightless birds that they can easily harvest, pluck, and eat. And so this is a huge provision based on the fact that they were complaining about his last provision. Just really quick, parents in the room, when you do something nice for your kid, and then your kid's ungrateful and asks for more, what do you do? Don't answer that out. Don't answer that out. We don't want to talk about that. But I, I know what this is like, and I didn't for a long time, but my dad back there knows what that's like. <laughs> he does something nice for me, and then I complain about it. And you know what it's like when, when that happens? Think, man, think about how kind God is. 
he literally could have just fried them all and been totally justified. And what did he do? Patient, loving, forgiving, merciful, long-suffering, that this is the character of your God. So whatever complaining, whatever discontent, whatever sin you've committed, if the Lord's revealing that today in your heart, take it seriously, okay? Don't just ignore it because God loves you. But consider that God's probably known about that for a long time. He's maybe even put things in your life to reveal that to you. And you've maybe even, I mean, you know the pernicious sins that keep besetting us. And, oh man, I thought I learned this lesson and now I'm learning it again. But understand, this is the God you serve. He loves you. He's patient. Man, is he patient. And some of you know how patient he is because you've had to rely on that patience. Well, I think there's a little bit of patience here. There's a little bit of like showing Moses who he is. And then what happens next? You have this abundance of, this is a lot of quail. So I didn't even look up an omer, but 10 omers is a lot. And so it says that they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And it's almost like if you've ever seen those, um, like when someone goes hunting, and, or they go, they go fishing, and they hold up their chain. What? Str- thank you, the stringer. This is so helpful. I'm a city kid. And there's all these fish hanging there, and they're like, yeah, you know. Or like you, you've got this buck with 30, 37 antlers or whatever, and you're like, yeah, you know. I don't know if that's actually how many they have. Um, or, or I don't know, maybe you're hunting squirrels. You've got like 60 you know, by the t- I don't know how this works, but you're like showing off how great you've done. I don't think that's bad, but I think there's a sense here in the text where they were out. Now, who needs 10 omers of quail? I mean, I, I know this is camp and we eat a lot, but I don't think we could eat 10 omers of quail, each one of us. And so remember how the manna worked. How much were they supposed to gather every day? Just enough for that day, right? If they gathered more than a day, what would happen to the manna by the morning? worms, and it was really bad. And the only day they were allowed to gather extra was Friday because Saturday was the Sabbath and they weren't to do any work that day. So here's another provision of God and the people run out and they essentially have their own episode of hoarders. And they just get all the manna they can and they like spread it out and they're like, well, probably in Hebrew, shalom, you know, like I don't know what it is. And they're, you know, ah! And so they're, they're excited, they're happy. Why does God get mad that they're, they're getting all this? Did he give them instruction not to gather more than they needed? I don't know that he does. The text doesn't say he did. So then why is he so mad at them for gathering so much? Think of the book of James. Chapter 4, verse 2. It says, you ask, remember it's talking about prayer, Like, if you need something, ask God. But a lot of times, like, what causes fights and quarrels among you? It's these desires, these passions in you. Uh, You don't have, so you fight and you murder. You have, but you don't have because you don't ask. When you ask, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So I think what's going on here is greedy, gluttonous, passion-driven, desire-driven, lustful-driven people who just want extra food. They're just so unhappy and ungrateful for what God's done. 
And now this is their idol that they get to serve by eating it and loving it. And so they're ripping, I mean, they're just preparing it. And it says that it's, they put it in their mouth and before it had been consumed, I think that's like before all of it had been eaten or before the bird had been eaten or before they had swallowed, whichever one it is, uh, God judges them. And so the people hoard, and then what does God do? He judges them, and they, they die. They die. This is not like they get sick and recover. They die. Is that harsh? Is God being a harsh, evil, wicked God? I don't think I could say that. There's too much in the Old Testament about how great and merciful and kind he is. But I do think this is a good lesson for us to see how serious the sin of grumbling and discontent is. Now we'll talk about why that is in a bit. And then the final bit is that we have this Kibriath or Kibroth Hatavah, and it means the graves of craving. And this book ends our story. It, it finishes that little chiastic structure. So in the end, the thing, the very thing these people were lusting after, were pleading for, pining away for, longing for, is the, the, it, was, it was a demonstration to them of the sin in their heart. They were, they were discontent with God. And it's not that eating quail is a sin. No one's going to say eating quail is a sin. Not even in the Old Testament. There's no laws against it in the, in the Mosaic law. Okay, That's not the issue. But their desires and the motives of their heart were fully ungrateful to God. And the fact that they went out and immediately hoarded it and celebrated and they were eating it like that is just showing how how wicked they were at a heart level. And so when God judges this, it's not that it's not really about the quail. It's about them questioning the goodness of God. I really think that's the big deal here. I don't think it's the quail. I think it's the questioning the goodness of God in their hearts. All right, so what's the point of the story? I, I mean, I think there's a lot of points in the Old Testament. There's always the point related to Israel and the covenant uh, that God's keeping up and taking care of. There's always the what's pushing the narrative forward with Christ coming in the future. But I would say like the big point here that might transfer the most to us is that complaining is serious and discontentment can lead to death. Now, I don't think you get discontent and God's going to strike you dead. But think of all the people who, because they're discontent, live in such a way where the thing, their idol that they're living for, is actually the thing that ends up killing them. So this rabble and the Israelites had this idol. It was, I just want something different than manna. God is not good to me because I have to eat this manna. Oh, I finally got the idol that I wanted, and what did it do? It ended up being the thing that God used to judge them and kill them. And we know people, I think the easy one is, you know, drug addiction. You overdose on a drug and you, you know, and it ends up, but I think there's other things. Man, you can kill your marriage. You can destroy your marriage with discontent. You can destroy your family with discontent. It's not just the big things. Your health might suffer because you're just not content when it comes to food. Uh, your laziness could kill your career. There's all kinds of ways our discontentment manifests itself at a heart level and then in action. And that can end up having really serious negative consequences. Um, how many of the people died in these events? We don't have a record, but it had to have been a pile of them. Okay, I feel like one person had this happen to, I think, that make a note, but here's a whole part of the camp that burns down because these people are complaining. 
And then all these people are out grabbing quail, and then they're just dying from this plague. It gets so bad in both cases that the people cry out to Moses, and Moses has to pray, and then God ends the plague. So I think this was a significant amount of people, which I think shows us how serious this is. And so, again, this is not how serious do you think the sin seemed to the community. Hey, we're going to go out and overeat on quail because we're so frustrated with our God who liberated us from slavery, saved us in the Red Sea, gave us food in the middle of a desert where there's no food, and has showed us all kinds of miracle miracles. Okay, It's overeating. It's hoarding. It's having too much food. It's not murder or theft or adultery. It's not any of the things in the Ten Commandments. Well, it is. It's idolatry. But I think sometimes when we think of serious sins, we only think of those big ones. This is a heart-level sin that I think pervades, especially in America. We are, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but we're in a unique position to really have this kind of be a, a sin that we would deal with. I think the reason God takes sin seriously here, well, God takes sin seriously in general, but the reason this one's so nefarious is because it's questioning God's character. Discontentment, you see it in complaining, but the root is an unbelief about who God is. Man, I would hate to be discontent in an area of life and not realize this. And then what's in my heart growing at all times? This root of unbelief in God. Wouldn't it be bad if you, you were suppressing that, your, your, your conscience is, is covered over and you don't notice it, and then you live a significant period of time just growing and festering that unbelief in God, all because you're not noticing that the complaints are coming out regularly in this area, and that's showing you God wants you to see that in your heart there's discontentment. So at this point, let's go back. So that book I recommended yesterday, uh, The Secret of Contentment, with the cup of water on, it's like half full or half empty, and I think that's the point. In it, the author, Barclay, makes three observations about discontentment, and I really think they're good. And he, he talks about this passage, and so I just want to use those for stuff for us to think about. So let's think through his three ideas here, his three observations. All right, he says this, Complaining entails forgetting God's presence and God's blessing in our lives. Complaining entails forgetting God's presence and forgetting God's blessings in our lives. This is a big aspect of discontentment. Remember in the text it said that they were, they were frustrated with Moses because they'd forgotten the God who was among them. Now, we don't have, uh, there's, okay, pa- Pastor Phil doesn't come out in the morning every day and go out to like a tentative meeting out and, you know, maybe past the, the basketball courts and he goes out and the, the Lord's smoke comes down and they, he talks to him, tells him what to do in camp each week. Like, we don't have anything like that in our world. But we have something better because of what Christ has done. So remember what he said at the end of the Great Commission, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. So Christ never leaves you, and he never forsakes you. He said that he would send his spirit, his helper. So if you're a believer, you are indwelled by his spirit, so God's presence is always with you. He has promised to reward those who seek him and obey him. He's promised to take care of those who abide in him, the true vine. And he omnisciously knows all things. So think about this. You can, you can kind of go in two directions with this thought. Number one, God is with us, so what conclusion do we draw? 
He knows our needs. Like, God's right there with you. Whatever is going on in your life, whatever struggle you're facing, whatever difficulty is going on, God's not unaware of it. He's actually with you. And what gets really even more interesting is that he allowed that to show you what's going on in here so you can be sanctified. So God's with you, so he already knows that. He already knows about that difficulty you're facing. There's another direction that you can go with this. That This one I think we, we sort of think of that. But if God's always with me, then he always is with me. He always sees me, he's always there. But a lot of times I think we act like, oh, God's not here right now. I can go do this. Yeah, I'm not at church, I'm just here. Oh, then I can do it. We, we get this forgetfulness about God's omnipresence, his being everywhere at all times and being with us. Um, and I think if we were to dwell on that, it may help us as we consider the sins that we're engaging in or we may want to engage in. So the presence of God, that's one of his characters. Remember, the foundation of contentment is the character of God. He is everywhere with us. He's promised to be with us. He's promised to take care of us. That is the foundation of contentment. If you forget that or you just don't think about that, you're just asking to be discontent with everything in life. All right, his next observation, I'm using new, he has a much more wordy way of saying this, but discontentment typically involves exaggerating the past. It typically involves exaggerating the past. So notice two ways you can exaggerate. You could either increase certain parts of your story. So when I, uh, like, okay, let's go back to the fishing illustration. And uh, you're, you're, you're telling the story about the fish you caught. And what do, why do we say a fish story? Like, what do we mean by that? Yeah, like you had like a little six-inch thing, and then you're like, man, it was like two feet long. And it's not a big deal. It's just a little lie, unless the person who was fishing with you is sitting right there. You're like, what? What are you talking about? Okay, it's one thing in hunting, but we do that when we remember our past. And so I remember this one job I was talking about earlier, and I remember how great it was and how, man, it was a really good job. And I could leave, and I didn't have to think about it till the next day. And I only had to work a little bit on Saturdays, and it was really fun in this one aspect. But if you had, like, time-traveled me back to myself in that moment, it really wasn't that great. It wasn't great pay. It wasn't great hours. I was really tired all the time. It really wasn't as great, but we sort of, in our mind, magnify the parts that we want to. Now, I don't think you set out, like, okay, I'm going to think about this, but I want it to be good, so I'm going to lie to myself about this. I think it's what our heart does to deceive us. So one way that we exaggerate the past is by making it bigger. I think another way we exaggerate the past is we don't give the whole picture. We don't give the whole picture. And just by accurately telling the one good thing and not mentioning all the bad things or the one bad thing and not all the good things, it exaggerates its inner mind for us. I would just ask you to think right now in your past, is there something you look back on fondly and, man, right now it's just not that good. But you're looking back and you're like, man, that was so much better then. Take an honest assessment. Is there anyone you know who was there with you? And if they were and you asked them to describe it, would they describe it the same way? It's like that fish. I caught a two-foot fish. But if your fishing buddy's right here and he's like, that was a six-inch fish, quit lying. Well, what about you? Is there anyone who was with you in that time in life? 
would they say the same thing you are? So we can exaggerate. That's just a source of discontentment. Or better, it's maybe a symptom showing you you're discontent. All right, number three, grumbling is tied to our unbelief, questioning not only God's providence, but his provision. Not only God's providence, but his provision. Barclay says it like this. When we grumble, we don't believe that God is in control. We question his ability to make good on promises, and at the root, this then is a lack of faith. God gave Moses instructions on what he would do. Moses questioned God. How can he do what he says? Moses wasn't asking just a simple question. He was challenging God's character, saying, you can't do that. No one can do it. How are you going to do that? And it was a doubting of God's character. That's typically with discontentment. So then how do we deal with that? There's a lot of ways. So here's just a couple of tips I think we could take to, to deal with discontentment. Uh, number one, think of discontentment like a cold. Not like it's not important, but that's how it functions. It passes like a cold. If you have little children, you understand how this works because you know what a nursery at your church is like. Okay, Your kids are healthy. You go to the nursery and like one kid's sick, and then every kid in the church is sick. And so you stay home, you stay home. Then you go back. Oh, man, it happens again. And then you get sick, and then you're hanging out with your friend, and you don't stay home, and they get sick. And so discontentment can be a lot like that. How you talk about your life in front of other people disciples them to think a certain way about your God. Think about that with your unsaved neighbors. If you're just shooting the breeze and you're always complaining, you may not realize it, but you're sort of giving off a picture of what your God is like. I don't think you need to be fake. You don't have to be like, man, I lost my job. But man, this is fun. You know, you don't need to say things like that. You don't need to be disingenuous. You can admit when it's difficult, but you have to remember the character of God at all times. That's the key to understanding discontentment. So think about your life right now. Who's your patient zero? Who's your patient zero? Who's the one that often infects you? And I don't want to make it their fault. It's your fault for being discontent. But is there someone you're around who sort of cultivates that in your heart? We're probably thinking of people. Can I, can I shift that a little? Think of non-people. So for me, <laughs> anyone watch House Hunters? Am I the only one who watches House Hunters? Okay. I used to, I really like, I still like that show. I like House Hunters International. They go in my houses all over the world. I like it because I like the travel idea. But I did notice that if I watch too many house hunters without really thinking about what I'm watching, suddenly my own house seems less awesome. You know, I don't, I'm not like a, I don't have like a million dollar budget. I can't go out and buy a big house. But it is funny, like sometimes watching stuff or viewing things or consuming things, it does breed discontentment. If you are trying to go on a diet and you're trying to lose weight and you're trying not to eat sugar, Watching Cake Boss is not the best show for you. It's just not good. You know, like, I, I, if I want to lose weight, I'm not watching Throwdown with Bobby Flay because everything he makes, I'm going to be like, I want to go, I want to go. You know, at night when I'm trying not to eat before I go to bed and then I'm watching the Food Network. Man, maybe that's not a good idea. But, but that's how discontentment works. Now, it doesn't mean it's a sin, and it doesn't mean you can never watch it, but pay attention to your soul. Is your soul hungry and is God not satisfying it? Man, don't put yourself in a position where that's going to be a temptation. All right. 
Number two, discontentment always relates to desires. It always relates to desires. So you should be on the lookout for where you have really strong desires and, and, and what situations are you in when you discover those. When you look at James chapter 4, this is a big, big deal. And then number three, look to Jesus. And the things that shine brightly for your attention, for your desires, will grow fainter each day. So one of my favorite songs is Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I'm so thankful we played it today. So I want, to think, I want you to think about the words. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, okay? It's like they're somewhere else, and you turn them to Jesus. Man, isn't that the story of our lives? We're looking at all these things of the world. We're not seeking the things that are above. We're seeking the things that are on the earth. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Look at him. It says, look full in his wonderful face. And I don't think he's talking about a face literally here, but who is Jesus? What's Jesus like? What has he done for you personally? Look at that and look long. Don't take like a passing glance. Meditate. Stare. Really like think about this. And then it says, and the things of earth, and I really think that's an allusion to Colossians chapter 3, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. His glory and grace, that's his character. My favorite word in this whole little chorus thing is the word strangely. Think about how much you love the stuff of earth. What could change your mind about that? It's, it's Christ, that's it. I mean, it is seeing Christ and then seeing that. And it's not that that gets bad, it's just you see Christ and then you look back at that thing your heart was lusting after and longing after and living for, and you look at it and it's not as bright and that's strange to you. I really think that's the picture here. You see Christ in his glory and the little bauble or the trinket or whatever it is, is dim and it's strange because it was never that way before. You didn't have to say how wrong it was or bad it was. Or you, you looked at the author and the perfecter of your faith. Oh, huh, that's strange, but I like it. I like it. So this, I feel like that song is just a really good uh, uh, song for you to think about at times like this. All right, here's your, your renewing the mind questions. And I believe, are these, hey, we got them printed off today. I fail, but Steve, he succeeds. See, this is so good. Steve loves you. All right, so here's your four questions. Number one, where do you encounter rabble? Okay, where do you encounter rabble in your life? Those people whose complaints tend to spread to you like the common cold. What could you do about those situations? Number two, what do you strongly desire in your life? What, okay, think about like this. What would make you really happy or make your life really, really much better? These are areas where discontentment can easily grow. You should spend some time reflecting on these. There's a resource coming directly related to that one. Number three, consider your life. Where do you look back and exaggerate the past? And does this lead to discontent with your present circumstances? Number four, consider the providence of God. Remember, that's his sovereign control of all situations in your life. Like where you are is exactly where God wants you. I mean, Sin notwithstanding, he wants us to grow, but he's allowed it. He's not out of control. He's always present. He's always in control. Has this truth escaped you recently? How could you remind yourself of this in the future? All right, today's resource is free. You don't have to pay for it. There's a, a journal called the Journal of Biblical Counseling. It's, but it has this article that's it's super well-known. And it's super helpful. It's called X-Ray Questions. 
drawing out the whys and wherefores of human behavior. Now, that sounds really like technical. I've, I've copied it. I've made it into a PDF. I put it on that website uh, that you were taking the links of earlier. There's 25 questions that you can ask yourself to reveal your heart. Now, I remember in a class at Faith, Dr. Newman had us read it, and I was reading it in class. And I remember I had to quit after, like, question six. It was way too convicting. It was just horrible. But you could take this and work through it over a month, and it's actually really nourishing. Now, I say that, but now I go back and look at it, and, oh, man, it's really helpful. So this is a great free resource. I would highly recommend you to read that. Okay, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you. God, thank you for your graciousness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you, Lord, that you forgive. You don't hold sins against us. Lord, thank you for the way you treated Israel. I am so thankful, God, that you provided manna, and then when they were sinful, you were still providing more for them because you're patient. God, that's who you are. Lord, if there's anyone today where this stuff's been bringing up issues in their heart, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't get stuck on the shame of our sin, but we would remember that Christ died on Calvary to take our shame, and we can have forgiveness, and we can walk forward with you who loves and forgives. Uh, Lord, I pray this be a good conversation today or a good time of rest. In your son's name we pray, amen.